everybody, and welcome to That's Life, where we're going to Dubai. Yeah, there's no, there's, there's nothing wrong with what you're hearing. I said we're going to Dubai, and Dubai will never be the same. Good morning, folks, and thanks for listening. I am Miriam L. Wallach, General Manager here at the Nahum Siegel Network. You can find me right after Allison, right before Nahum's live lunch. Yeah, today's live lunch is going to be fascinating. We have so much to talk about in terms of Dubai. We have so much to talk about in terms of how this project developed what you can expect, what you can look forward to as listeners. Do not touch that virtual dial. Stay tuned to all of our programming, of course, that we have today, but especially today's live lunch. Folks, it's my weekly reminder. It's me begging. I'm imploring you to wash your hands with soap and water 20 seconds. Happy birthday twice or, uh, you know, your favorite song. I'm sure we can come up with a variety of songs that for 20 seconds you can sing it and wash your hands with soap and water. Actually, I saw a pretty funny sign this week in a bagel store in the restroom. It says employees must wash hands for uh, wash your hands before returning to work. And then it says in parentheses, and uh, don't wait for our employee employees to wash your hands. You should wash them yourself. That was pretty cute. And, you know sarcastic it was adorable but either way wash your hands with soap and water and please practice social distancing let's stay safe let's stay healthy let's stay you know responsible is probably the word i'm looking for and yes wearing masks is just smart that is the bottom line wearing masks is just smart i was at um an event this week where there were plenty of people wearing masks and people not wearing masks um, it doesn't make me feel better to know that you have antibodies. It doesn't. If you're not doing it for yourself, do it for the people around you. Wear masks. It's just responsible. So, yes, as I, as I mentioned last week, I was just back from vacation. And in a million years, trust me when I tell you, I would not have expected that the next time I was getting on a plane would be to Dubai. But I'm excited to talk about it. Our guest will discuss it today. You'll hear all about that in a minute. But let me just do the uh, national holidays. Yes, national holidays. It's December already, folks. I know we didn't really think we'd make it to December because, you know, it's uh, it's been COVID. Everything is happening in dog years. Somebody just said to me that she's uh, she's launching a new project come 2021, and then she stopped and she said, "Well, that's in a month." I said, "Yeah, but a month in COVID is really dog years, so it's really like six months." Anyway, today is be a blessing day. Yeah, do something good for someone else. It's also e discovery day. It's International Baboon Day. I have no blessed idea what you're supposed to do with that. I really have n- I have no clue. I'm sure even Avrami would not be able to come up with something like that. Um, but it was something for that, I should say. It's also International Day of Persons with Disabilities. So shout out to all our community members who are living with disabilities and thriving with their disabilities. And shout out to their families and the organizations who support them. 100%. We are proud of you. Let's do the na- let's do my fortune cookie and then let's get to my guest. Today's fortune cookie. The coming month shall bring winds of change in your life. Well, that's right. I didn't even plan this, folks. That's right, because we're going to Dubai. And here to discuss that with me is my good friend, political genius and host of Novak Now here at the Nahum Siegel Network is Jake Novak. Jake, good morning. Good morning, and I'm so excited for your trip. I, I'm, I'm definitely going uh, with you guys vicariously, absolutely. Trust me, I wish we could take you in real life. That is for <laughs> sure. That is for sure. So let's talk for a second, because 
I mean, there's there there are a lot of elements to this. I do want to you know toot our own horn, so to speak, and discuss <laughs> what we could we consider the historic relevance or the historic importance of of this broadcast. I mean, it's really. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you and our listeners. It's not about us. It's about bringing the stories and the the narrative of the Jewish community in Dubai to our listeners. And in that, that is a historic moment. It really is. And, you know, it's very, very important because this is something that I know for sure um, American Jews don't know, even those who, who are very well versed in Zionism and the history of Israel. And I also know very well that a lot of Arabs don't know, but then, uh, then again, I would actually guess that there are some Arabs that do know this, and that is that it's very important to remember that the peaceful partnership that mostly ruled the day for many centuries between Arabs and Jews was very much similar to these peace agreements that are being signed. So this is super historic in so many ways, but we shouldn't forget that this is actually a return to the norms that we saw before the Arab-Jewish relationship started to decay at the beginning of the, of the 20th century. So I, I like to say to people, let's remember how historic and, and be joyous about this, but not think that we are absolutely boldly going where no man or woman has ever gone before, and it's so pre- precarious and there's you know, a 5% chance of it working, because it's actually more of a return to a better history that we once had before. And hopefully we'll improve upon that a lot, too, because that certainly wasn't perfect. Right, but I want everyone to remember, it's not impossible. What, what this, this, this new world we're in is not an impossible world. And, all, and it's all. something that you predicted. Yes, um, only because, you, you, again, you have to have that little better, um, I would say, understanding of history. The Arab-Jewish relationship, which had its ups and downs, but was never consistently dangerous, took this terrible turn for the worse when... You know, I'm, I'm, you know the, the people I'm about to blame should be no surprise to anyone, until the Nazis got involved. The Nazis mm-hmm. got involved even before they were in power in Germany in some of the thinking in the Arab world. They were early sponsors even before Hitler and came to power in Germany. They were early sponsors of the Muslim Brotherhood. And they were the first people, the Muslim Brotherhood, with this help from Germany and, and from the Nazis, I should say, were the first people to promote this genocidal outlook on Jews. In other words, whereas Muslims and Arabs at times had thought of Jews as second- or third-class citizens, and there were times when there was violence. There was never a, hey, the Jews are the root of all of our problems, let's kill them mentality, even among the worst of the Muslim or Arab leaders. That started with the Muslim Brotherhood, and that, of course, was a perfect outgrowth of Nazi ideology. So we've had a 90- to a 100-year hiatus of, of a terrible, in a terrible way from what was a nice relationship. And by the way, that relationship was mostly based on economic partnerships, which is why these peace deals are so important. These people are saying, oh, this isn't a military peace deal. What does it matter? They don't know anything. <laughs> they don't realize that peace deals are about economic and cultural ties more, more often than not. So we have members of the squad, and we have Tlaib, and we have AOC, and we have other anti-Zionists who are decrying and who are tearing their shirts and donning sackcloths because Israel is making peace with its Arab neighbors. Is there anything to say to these haters? Is there anything to say to them along the lines of, do you understand that you're, that you're crying over peace? Well, this is, um, we could say that to each other, hmm. but understand these people are, are basically an outgrowth. These people are agents of the Muslim Brotherhood and agents of Iran. So they're actually not, it's not like they're looking at this objectively and saying, oh, this is bad. 
they are paid mouthpieces and supported mouthpieces to, to speak against these deals. Because, again, it isn't just because they don't want to see Israel thrive and some of the Gulf states that are also enemies of Iran thrive. They believe in this ideology that I was just talking about. They are adherents to this genocidal ideology about Jews. Now, they may say, oh, we're not anti-Semites, we just hate Israel. Listen, I'm sure on your program and many other times before, we've talked about the fallacy of that. That's right. not logical. Right. Obviously, if, you, if there's only <laughs> one people in the world that you don't believe has a homeland, then you have a genocidal outlook, outlook towards Jews. There's just no other way to say it. Right. So, I mean, we, yes, we could bang our head against the wall. So, but if there are people who are listening to this who aren't too far gone, then yes, we can appeal to them and say, look, the, the Israeli-Palestinian issue is something that does need to be resolved in some way. Um, there are a lot of options that are better than what we have now, and there are a lot of options better than the so-called two-state solution even. But we can talk about that. But this fallacy that no peace can exist in the Middle East until this one problem is solved, which is something that uh, I would say most Democrats and even a lot of Republicans have believed. In fact, actually, probably most Republicans have believed this as well. It's a total fallacy. It doesn't make any sense. It's, it's like saying, well, I can't do my homework because I stubbed my toe. It's not, you know, if, if you can move past the pain of your toe and do your homework, you know, then you can do it. And that's what's happened here. And again, it very much flies in the face of what has been, unfortunately, the most popular philosophy in the Arab world, Arab-Muslim world for the last 100 years, which has been this Muslim Brotherhood genocidal outlook on Jews, which thankfully, is, as, as powerful as it's been and as influential as it's been, it is not Islam. It is not quite the Islamic outlook on Jews, thank goodness, and that's why we can have better uh, peace and better partnership. You know that John Kerry clip that was going around for a while in which he says that there will be no peace with Israel until the Palestinian problem is solved. And, of course, that was accompanied by a million laughing hysterical emojis by anybody <laughs> who shared it, myself included, because that was— the narrative for so many years, and now we are looking at that narrative and saying, wow, was that spun or what? Was that just created out of nothingness or what? And now you have these Arab states who are saying, yeah, that, that wasn't good for us. But what's interesting to me is the fact that people think it's one or the other, and the squad is like that. You can believe that the Palestinian situation needs to be needs to be rectified. We, I mean, we want a better life for Palestinians. That doesn't mean that Israel should cease to exist. That doesn't mean that other Arab countries should not have good diplomatic relations with Israel. One does not preclude the other. Yeah, and, and you don't have to be a boring history professor to simply say in less than a full sentence that the, the, the idea that I'm about to say as well. Why, you know, we have to ask ourselves a question. Why are the Palestinians now in what we now call the, you know, the state of Israel? Why are they there? How did they get there? Just like 99.9% .9 of all the Jews who are currently living in Israel, even though there are always Jews and there have always been Arabs who have lived in what we now call Israel, less than 1% of the Jews living there now can directly trace their ancestors to having lived there without any, without any break, without any interruption, mm -hmm. before 1880. When the Jews started to come in the 1870s and the 1880s, to start to repopulate and try to resettle the land of Israel. Arabs from the Ottoman Empire poured into the land at the same time because the word got out that the Jews were hiring to do farm work, to do other kinds of, do architecture work, to do all that kind of work. That's why they're there. In other words, just about every single Arab and every single Jew that's in Israel right now is there because of each other. They wouldn't be there without one another being there. And it was for an economic 
um, I would say, you know, uh, developmental reasons. You know, again, we, don't, we can talk about, listen, for, for, for Jews and for, for people who, who are, you know, who worship at the, the mosques on the, in Jerusalem, obviously we have religious connections. But the point is, we, we're there physically because of the, these economic partnerships that, that were forged. So for the squad and for these other people who say, oh, this can't work, the Jews came out of nowhere and took this and took that, it's just not true. There were about 40,000 people living in Israel total before any of these other you know, developments began in the mid to late 19th century. So, we were there, so they were there for what is actually, again, what I consider to be a historical reset. Let's start building the Middle East together again, like we did from what, what I would say 1870 to roughly 1930 when things you know, fell apart after the Hebron massacre in 1929. Let's get back to that work because there's a lot of work to be done, and thankfully there's a lot of genius in Israel and a lot of money in the Arab states, you know, in these Gulf states, to, to, to work together. And there's, there, there's really no limit to what can be done. And do you think Saudi Arabia is next? Are they jumping on the bandwagon next? Yes, I think so. Um, you know, they're, they're going to want to see how much trouble they're going to get into with the potential new administration uh, if they do go full hog into a partnership with Israel. But I actually think that in the end they're going to do it either way, because let's say they hold off and they say, well, what's going to happen with this administration? And then, that, and then and, you know, again, judging if there's no... <clears throat> overturning of the election, which obviously seems to be a little bit more of a remote possibility every day, <laughs> right. um, there's going to be some kind of deal. You know, if there's a real strong pursuit of a deal with Iran, I think that Saudi Arabia will even be more inclined to join in more openly with Israel. And if that fails, then they'll say, hey, our partnership with Israel really helped uh, avoid that problem. And then, so again, either way, I think they should actually probably just save themselves some time and do it now and, and make an announcement now. But I can understand why they want to hold off. But I don't see any scenario where it doesn't look like to the Saudi royal family, and in particular Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, I don't see any scenario where he doesn't look at this six months to a year from now or even three months and say, we really should make this deal now because there's no, you know, the downsides are much worse. So forget Pesach in Dubai. We're looking at Pesach in Riyadh. I mean, the number of programs yeah. going on right now that are transporting by the plane load, the Israelis, Israelis looking to get to go on vacation, to get out of Dodge a little bit, who are all heading to Dubai uh, for multiple reasons, both both for, you know, um, personal vacations, but also because there are all these economic summits and political summits that are going on there, being that it is a green country. I mean, are we really looking at heading to Riyadh in six months? Well, you're looking at, yeah, I think so. And I think also, I mean, you know, you talk about vacation, you talk about, you know, it's actually, there already has been obviously some kind of business dealings going on, but when Israelis or any, or even Americans who were doing business in Israel wanted to then go to Dubai and vice versa, they would have to do it through Europe. It was like, 15 hours out of their way, if they were lucky, if they didn't have to just sleep over one night. These direct flights, being three hours, have, have saved a, more than a, a day's worth of business for a lot of people. Right. So that's a huge deal. Um, Riyadh, I'm not so sure about. <laughs> not because I think it's you know, what kind of a city. I, I think of like, when I think of doing these like Pesach tours in crazy foreign lands, I always think, of like, well, where's the Jewish history there? And we know for a fact that there was a large Jewish community in the city of Medina. Now, I don't know how the Saudi government's going to feel about Jews going, you know, having a Passover in one of their holy cities. But, you know, there's a, there's a specific, you know, the, the, it's funny, you know, Muhammad, and, Muhammad had an issue with the Jewish community in Medina, which was quite large. So, you know, we can have some fun talking about the history there, and maybe, maybe not staying there for Vesak, maybe we can get a tour and find some of the, if there's any kind of remains of the Jewish settlements there. But, no, I, I really think this is, uh, that, that's very important. And again, this is all so important when we compare this to the peace deal that we've had with Egypt, you know, for these 40, 50 years. Because 45 years, I guess, or 42. Because 
there was never much of a cultural uh, connection there. Yes, Jews were able to go to Egypt and, and visit the pyramids and stuff like that, but there was never really a, an economic connection. There was never really a cultural exchange, and 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 that's not completely, uh, you know, it's hard to understand why. You know, the more we're learning now about the Muslim Brotherhood in, in Egypt over the years, the more we realized that Sadat and then Mubarak had to juggle, the, juggle them very difficultly. It was very difficult for them to keep the Muslim Brotherhood at bay. I'm not exonerating them for any of the things that they did, but a lot of times they had to be nice to them, and sometimes they had to be mean to them. And so any chance of a real cultural bond with Israel was always a long shot. Now, these other countries, not only are they not really, you know, not only do they not have the Muslim Brotherhood as a, as a major political movement within their countries, but Saudi Arabia just declared the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist organization. Right. And, uh, you know, that means all the other Gulf states are going in that direction as well. So they're really just saying these guys are illegitimate. They're not just jailing them for a while and then letting them out of jail and doing this little cat and mouse game like Mubarak did for so many years in Egypt. They're really trying to get rid of them. And that predated this deal with Israel. We knew three years ago. And two, and two years ago, that Mohammed bin Salman was starting to purge the clerics in Saudi Arabia who were anti-Israel and anti-American. We knew that when he was putting half the princes in Saudi Arabia up in sort of a house arrest at the, at the, at the Riyadh, the Ritz-Carlton, that he was expecting them to change their tune about the U.S. and, and Israel. So this is, not, um, this, is, this is not just because of the peace deal. Well, I got to tell you, I'm not really to, ready to say the words J.M. and A.M. from Riyadh or <laughs> J.M. and A.M. from Medina. Those yeah. are two sentences It's going to take me a little bit yeah. longer to swallow. You're listening to That's Life here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Jake Novak joins me this morning. We're discussing the upcoming trip to Dubai again. I mean, that's a sentence I never thought I'd say either. But uh, so many things have been in the work in the Gulf region for so many years. I guess this was, please, I mean, this was meant to be. Let's talk for a second, though, about the, um, shall we say, assassination or the relief of the earth from the uh, nuclear mastermind in Iran. Now, yeah. there, has, there have been issues from the Israeli State Department warning travelers uh, heading to Dubai that there are concerns of uh, repercussions for these for this uh, assassination against Israeli tourists. Now there also obviously have been, um, shall we say, theories as to why this assassination took place when it did. I think that we're giving people a lot of credit as to saying we're trying to take care of business before the change in the U.S. administration. But as somebody very aptly mentioned on Twitter, yeah, these assassinations don't happen overnight. They yeah. take years of planning. So you take the opportunity when it comes to you. Don't think that it is politically motivated as much as motivated as saving the earth. Right. Yeah. And look, this guy, I mean, I, I said on, on um, my, the, you know, the Novak Now edition we had on Monday, um, we should stop calling this guy a nuclear scientist. It makes him sound like he's some kindly guy in a white jacket who was just <laughs> working with some beakers and, and, and uh, test tubes. He was the number one weapons uh, uh, you know, technologist in the world, the number one weapon uh, villain, <laughs> whatever you want to call him. And uh, he had been for a long time. And so, you know, I, you know, calling him a scientist and all that kind of stuff uh, is, is, like, is like saying he's calling him a man. I mean, that's not the thing that you need to know. So, yeah, I think that, that, is, um, that that's a very important thing um, to, to mention. Right. And um, the, the chances of some kind of real repercussions taking place 
in Dubai. I mean, there, the, the mention was that um, often payback happens somewhere in the UAE, that it is it is used as an arm, so to speak, um, of Iranian payback. I mean, is that a real concern or that say, everybody keep your wits about you? Well, it's always a concern. Um, but, you know, they really have, they, they were threatening after the killing of Soleimani, the head of the IRGC, almost exactly a year ago, by the way. Um, That's a the, heck of an anniversary there, Jake. Yeah, yeah. Of, the, of the Islamic <laughs> Revolutionary Guard Corps. And, and he, I called it, world's number one bad guy. I mean, I, he, right. he was, forget about, like, using any other uh, um, adjectives for him. He was the number one bad guy in the world. He was the number one organized murderer leader in the world. And that was a year ago, and they were warning, well, this is going to be the end of everything. And this is going to put the whole Middle East into a state of massive war and yada, yada, yada. And none of that happened right away. Now, listen, I'm not whistling past the graveyard. I know it could happen in any day. But understand that these masterminds, for lack of a better word, these people who are so dedicated to the killing, whether it was uh, Soleimani or this guy uh, for Grisida, these guys are, are actually very much put to have their fingers on it in a way that no one else has it in Iran. Most of my Iranian sources have told me that, well, yes, there's other people who are very willing to do murder and do these kinds of things in Iran, but they are not, um, they are not as, as capable. They, they don't know where all the, all the, uh, you know, they don't know where all the bodies are buried right. or where they want to bury all the bodies. So right. that's a very important fact that we should remember. It, it, just, to, just to feel a little bit better about it and understanding that these are enemy combatants. These are people who have killed thousands of people and threatened the lives of millions, and that is not an exaggeration on mm. either point. So we aren't going to cry over them, and we also can't say, like, well, it could be worse. Uh, you know, what, what happens if they, the, the, the things these guys were planning to do personally are much worse than the, even the worst retaliations that they're threatening. And I, I just I want to be able to end on a positive note. I wanted to I know right. I I want to talk for a second about you know you're you're listen you're a very big picture thinker and the depths of your historical knowledge often just continue to stun me even though I don't think at this point they should but they still do. So so looking five years down the line, Jake, tell me how you see relationships developing between Israel and other. Arab countries. What are we looking for? I mean, five years ago, I'm not sure people like me would have ever imagined that we'd be where we are. But tell me, somebody like you, with the perspective that you have, where do you see things in five years? Well, I see things developing mostly along the lines of tech. Uh, And that is really actually non-military tech, although military tech will be a part of it, but mostly non-military tech. And here's a little tell that I got from this. I, I, I was expecting this uh, as, as a fact that I didn't expect that, the, that this would be said op- openly and so publicly. If you remember the peace deal signings back in September, that when Bahrain and the UAE guys both got up there, and then you'll notice that when they made their little speeches, and by the way, they were both under three, everyone spoke for less than three minutes, including Netanyahu. What a, someone needs to talk to Shul presidents about this. I was going to say, because <laughs> it wasn't a Shul pulpit. Yeah, exactly. Know, it's, it's such a great job. Yeah. But both the Bahraini uh, guy and the, and the person from the UAE both mentioned the children. Now, when we hear this on television, we're thinking, oh, this is like the Whitney Houston, I believe the children are... No, that's not what they were talking about. They were literally talking about their adult children, their next-generation young people in their 20s and early 30s, who, guess what? There's not enough jobs for them in the oil industry, and the oil industry is shrinking in many ways. And they've got... And they are also... that They've got to think of something else for these kids to do, kids, they're they're adults, and they're very tech-savvy. The younger generation, again, I think most embodied by Mohammed bin Salman, who's still in his early 30s, but there's people who are a little bit younger, they're incredibly tech-savvy and tech-interested in, 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 young men. 
and they're really into anything that kind of gets a gee whiz reaction out of them. And so as anyone knows who follows the tech world, Israel has got to be mentioned. When I first got into the you know, financial news full-time in 2000, I'd been in local news for six years before that, I thought to myself, well, maybe once in a while I'll be able to slip in an Israel story, nod, nod, wink, wink. <laughs> no, actually, I couldn't go more than a couple of days without putting in Israel stories all the time. I, I was actually forced to do it, even if I didn't want to, and I certainly wanted to. So I think that that is where you're going to see the most developments. You're going to see these incredible technologies that Israel is going to develop, and uh, with the financial backing of Dubai and Bahrain. And we are talking about, you know, we've always talked about Israel as a startup nation. Now listen to this term and, and remember it really well. The term now for Israel should be scale-up nation, Ooh. because the money that's going to be coming from Dubai and, and Bahrain and other places like that will be able to take these little startup companies, and instead of just making them good enough to sell off to a big American company one day, which, is, you know, which has been the model, now it's going to be like, how can we scale up these countries with this money that we're getting from our partners in, in, our, in our neighbors? to be very, very large, which again brings us back to what I was talking to you about in the beginning, a reset to where we were 90 years ago when the king of Egypt and the government of Egypt, which had Jews in it, by the way, thought of the Jews who were creating a state in Israel and, you know, were hoping to do at that time in the 1910s and in 1920s, they were saying to themselves, let's let the Jews get a state here because this is going to help us economically develop and get out, of the th- under, out from under the thumb of England and France, which is what they wanted. And so now we're back to that. A hundred years later, we're back to the future, back to this point of view where the Middle East says to itself, hey, we're not, we're not belligerent against the United States or the EU, but we want to be independent of them, and we want to have our startup companies be able to develop here in Israel and not have to rely on Intel or IBM to buy them as soon as they start up. Scale up nation. You heard it here first. My word. I mean, you got you to gotta do something. You got to copyright that, Jake. You got to yeah. copyright it and copyright it now. Jake Novak, again, hosts Novak Now Thursday mornings at 11 a.m. only here at the Nachum Siegel Network. Jake, I thank you so much for your time and a of course, for your perspective, and uh, salam to you, my friend. <laughs> salam, and have a really great trip. I'm going to be listening those three, those three, four shows. You know it. I do know it. I do know it. That's why I'm bringing my game. That's why I'm bringing okay. my game. Thanks, Jake. You're welcome. All right, a full afternoon of programming. The live lunch starts in just a few moments here, all about Dubai before it happens, and then, of course, the live lunch next week in Dubai. That sentence also, never thought I'd say that. Maishi Tischler, we're going to close today with Maishi Tischler's Nayrot. Don't touch that virtual dial, folks. That's life, everybody. Bye, guys. Oh
Jesus Christ.